you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We're continuing our uh, Advent study uh, through selections uh, uh, by the prophet Isaiah. And we have come to Isaiah chapter 53. We'll be looking at verses 4 to 6, uh, but I will begin reading in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Give our attention to the reading of God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like the sheep that, that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he has taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are the gracious Lord who has caused these words that are before us to be written for our instruction. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us hearts that would receive every word that has come from this text by faith. 
We pray that you would take our eyes and fix them on the Lord Jesus Christ who has been crucified and raised for sinners. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I asked this question uh, last year in a previous Advent sermon, and I think it's worth asking again this year. And the question is, who is Christmas for? Who is Christmas for? I think we rightly spend time meditating and considering what Christmas is about, and that is a good thing to constantly remind ourselves of. But this question of who is Christmas for is worthy of our consideration as well. We can answer this question in a number of different ways, but I want to suggest to us this morning that Christmas is supremely for the guilty. Christmas is for the guilty. Christmas is for those who are guilty of breaking God's most holy law. In Act 5, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's play Macbeth, Uh, there is an interesting situation taking place. Lady Macbeth, who is the wife of Macbeth, the main character, is hallucinating. It gets to this point where Macbeth, out of concern for his beloved wife, summons a doctor to examine her. The doctor walks into the room, and Lady Macbeth begins to speak. She yells out, out spots, out spots, I say. She then mutters, who would have thought that the old man to have so much blood in him. You see, Lady Macbeth and her husband Macbeth just killed someone for the purpose of maintaining the throne that they are illegitimately sitting on. And at this point, Lady Macbeth's conscience condemns her. The guilt she feels is overwhelming her to the point where she begins to be sleepless and starts hallucinating. Lady Macbeth continues and says, here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Lady Macbeth has blood on her hands that she can't get off. She says that the finest perfumes that the world has to offer cannot remove the the guilty stench that exudes from her hands. The doctor eventually, after taking all this in, says, hey, this disease is above my practice. You don't need a physician, you need a priest. See, Lady Macbeth and this doctor knew that in regard to her guilt, there was nothing they could do. The doctor couldn't prescribe anything, and Lady Macbeth did not have the ability to wipe her blood-stained hands clean. The guilt that she incurred could not be removed by her own efforts or by the doctor's expertise. Beloved, Christmas is for people like that. It's for those who have blood on their hands and consciences that condemn them. It's for those who know that if they have to answer for all that they have done, they will be crushed. You see, our great problem is not that we just feel guilty, but it's that we are actually guilty. And beloved, that is a burden too simply too big for us to bear. And some of you this morning find yourself overwhelmed with guilt even right now. You know and you have experienced the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers you in the gospel, but still, sin still haunts you. It still plays in your mind like a movie clip that is on replay. Beloved, what makes our unbearable guilt go away? Who can bear it for us? 
Our text this morning tells us that you and I don't have to bear our guilt. It tells us that God has provided someone to bear our guilt for us. God has provided for us a scapegoat. You see, Isaiah is answering these questions of how can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people? How can the the glory of God come down to those who only deserve the wrath of God? How can salvation come to people like you and me? These questions that the whole book of Isaiah anticipates are answered in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 12, which is called the Servant's Song. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And this one that we are looking at this morning is the most familiar of the four. And hear me, make no mistake about it, this song is all about Jesus. His name may not be on the page, but it's all about him. No one else is able to meet these promises that we see in this text. One commentator says that Isaiah 53 is the the clearest presentation of Jesus in all of the Old Testament. The New Testament quotes eight of its verses in fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Many of these words are used technically in the New Testament to speak of Christ and what he has done. Apart from verse 2, every single verse of this song is cited in the New Testament scriptures. So as we read and meditate and consider its truths this morning, we are to see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other passages of scripture, we find places where things are partially fulfilled in one person, but here we find them completely filled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is able to do what is said to be done in this song. The song is made up of five stanzas. If you notice, each stanza is three verses. Stanzas one and five speak of the exaltation of the servant. Stanzas two and four speak of the humiliation of the servant, and that stanza right in the middle, verses four to six, speak of the significance of the servant. The song is structured in such a way that it's meant to to highlight these central verses. It's meant to italicize them. And I want us to see this morning in Isaiah chapter 53, verses four to six, one central truth, and it is this. Salvation is by substitution. Salvation is by substitution. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say that salvation is by substitution. Isaiah writes as if you and I are standing beside him together at the cross and pondering that all that is taking place. I know it's the Christmas season. And many of you, as you probably got ready this morning and walked into these church doors, assumed that I would probably be preaching on something about baby Jesus. You may be feeling that I'm ruining the mood of Christmas by bringing up blood and wrath and nails and scars. But beloved, Jesus came into the world to be our substitute. The message of Christmas is that Christ has come into the world to save the the guilty, the lowly manger points to the ultimate lowliness, a shameful public execution on a Roman cross. Isaiah wants us to understand what's going on on at the cross this day. Theologians have typically used three different terms to describe the cross. First, they say the cross is substitutionary in nature, meaning that Jesus on the cross is our substitute. Secondly, they say the cross is penal in character, meaning that on the cross, Christ is bearing our penalty. 
And thirdly, they speak of the cross as an act of atonement, meaning the sacrifice settles the wrath of God and divine justice. And if you look closely at verses 4 to 6, you will see each one of those verses mentions one of those terms. First, we see substitution in verse 4. We see penal in verse 5. And then we see atonement in verse 6. I want to structure our time together this morning. I want us to see that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus bears our penalty. And then thirdly, Jesus atones for our sin. Jesus, the suffering servant, is our substitute who bears our penalty and atones for our sin. First, Jesus is our substitute. Look with me in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In the stanza right before this one, Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant. He speaks of the suffering servant who has been rejected by God's people. He said that this servant had no majesty, no form, or nothing about him that we should look at him, or no beauty that we should desire him. He was one who was despised and rejected. One who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we considered him as nothing. And you notice verse 4 changes in tone. If you're reading closely, maybe without the, the verse numbers in your Bible, then it reads as if there's an element of surprise. It was written to catch us off guard. There seems to be this excitement that flickers in Isaiah's heart. The one who was rejected and despised by us is the very one who suffers and dies for us. Isaiah says that this servant has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The verbs in Isaiah here are important. He bore our griefs. That word bore means to to lift up off someone else. It's this picture of someone who is stronger bearing the weight of someone who is weaker. He carried our sorrows. Literally, he shouldered our sorrows. This verbiage verbiage that Isaiah uses is meant to highlight that Christ is not suffering with his people, but he is suffering for his people. Jesus is truly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but they are not his own sorrows or his own grief. They are ours. As one perceives... All that is taking place on the cross, one might think that, because, that Jesus is there because of his own wrongdoing. That's why it says in the second half of verse 4, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah is saying that as you look at the cross, as you look at what is taking place there, it appears that Jesus is being cursed by God. The word stricken is often associated with the disease of leprosy. This is why some translations say that he was plagued or God-stricken. In the Old Testament, it was often considered that if you were suffering, it was because of your own fault. Think of the book of Job. But beloved, we live like that too, right? When something challenging happens to us, we first begin to question, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? When someone is struggling, let's say financially, our first assumption is often that they likely did not manage their resources well, even if that is not the case. 
It's as if the people, as they look at Jesus on the cross, begin to wonder what terrible thing must he have done to deserve to be put on the cross. You see, Jesus is not there because of his own wrongdoing. He's there as our substitute. Those of you who are in school understand this concept of substitute. When you have a substitute teacher, you have someone who is taking your teacher's place. They're, they're your teacher's substitute. If you're an athlete, you know that there are times where you need to be subbed out of the game and someone subs in for you. That person is effectively taking your place on the court. This is exactly what's happening on the cross of Christ. Christ is taking the place of his people. The grief and sorrows that, that, that we incurred because of our sins are placed upon his shoulders. Think about Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and to pray and to prepare for the agony of the cross. Mark 14 verse 33 tells us that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He then prays, and do you remember his request? Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This terrible weight that Jesus feels crushing upon his shoulders and pressing upon him it's not his burden, but yours and mine. It's our burden lifted off of his shoulders and placed off of our shoulders and placed on him. This is the great act of substitution. The misery, the grief, and the guilt that is ours is placed on another. Jesus Christ is our suffering servant who is our substitute. But beloved, he's not only our substitute, also notice even more specifically, he bears our penalty. Jesus bears our penalty. Take a look with me in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That word but in verse 5 is important. It's meant to emphasize the contrast that is between the suffering servant and us. As Jesus is on the cross, it was thought that he was being punished by God for his own sins and failures. But the reality is that he is pierced and crushed for our transgressions and iniquities. Why is Jesus on the cross? Whose fault necessitated the cross? Notice the repetition of that word our in verse 5. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. Words transgressions and iniquities are the, the two famous Old Testament words for sin. Transgression speaks of this willful breaking of God's law, and iniquity speaks of this natural bent that we have towards disobeying the Lord. Beloved, we are those who have disobeyed intentionally and purposely and have rejected the commands of our God. We are also those who are naturally inclined to reject God's rule and reign. We live in this cultural moment where everyone has strong opinions about what is wrong with the world. And you know what? The Bible has a strong opinion as well. It says that our sin, my sin, and our and my rebellion against the God who has created us in his image, whose commands are only light-giving, our rebellion against him 
That's the greatest problem in the world. Why was Jesus on the cross? The only proper answer to that question is because of our sins. He was there taking upon himself our guilt, our penalty, our sin upon himself. There's a famous painting that many of you might know by Rembrandt entitled The Raising of the Cross. Uh, Rembrandt uh, in this painting is communicating something uh, beautiful and a marvelous truth really. If you look at this painting, you will see that the cross is being hoisted up into its place. And in the background, you can see a a priest, you can see the women crying on behalf of Jesus and the, the soldiers mocking. But what is unique about Rembrandt's painting is that Rembrandt paints himself into the picture. Rembrandt views himself as one who is helping to crucify Christ. Do you understand what he's communicating there, beloved? Rembrandt understands him to be one of those who was present at the resurrection, at the crucifixion of Jesus, because his sins necessitated the crucifixion. Beloved, ultimately, it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was the reality that God's, the sins of God's people needed to be paid for, and Jesus' desire to pay for those sins that kept him to the cross. As the old spiritual says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Beloved, the only answer to that question is yes. It was our crimes, our sins that Jesus bore on himself at the cross. Notice the second half of verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. To say that Jesus was chastised is to say that Jesus was punished. It was to say that Jesus was disciplined. There was a penalty for sin and Jesus took all of it. Beloved, you know this, guilt must be paid for. It can't be swept under the rug. We know this truth, don't we? We know this from our own experiences. When you have wronged someone, when you have been wronged or when you have been injured, let's say perhaps in a car accident, the damages to your car and the cost to you doesn't go away. It has to be paid for by someone. It has to be fixed. This is even more so the truth about our God. Our God is a God of justice. If he allows the, the guilty to go unpunished, he is no longer just. In fact, he is now unjust. Listen to how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The great question of the Bible is how can this God be both merciful and and just how can he clear the guilty and still be gracious the answer to that question of course is that jesus the innocent one the only guiltless one the spotless lamb of god who has come into the world to take away the sins of god's people that jesus takes upon himself 
the punishment that we deserve to satisfy, satisfy God's righteous justice. This is why Paul says that God can be both the just and the justifier. In Christ, God displays mercy, grace, and steadfast love, and at the same time does not clear the guilty, but rather transfers that guilt upon himself. And notice all of the benefits that we receive because of this. We receive peace and healing. Peace speaks of this undoing of our hostility and alienation from God. Healing speaks of this undoing of our dysfunction and brokenness. Beloved, we receive wholeness. We receive reconciliation with God. We are, back, we are brought back to the very place that we were always meant to be. Beloved, the work of Jesus on the cross for, was for the purpose of bringing us back into communion with God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive peace on the cross while Christ receives our punishment. We receive healing while Christ receives hell. We receive blessing while Christ receives covenant cursing. As the hymn goes, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed with my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus is our substitute. He's the one who bears our penalty. But not only that, lastly, he atones for our sin. Jesus atones for our sin. Read with me in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This contrast that we mentioned earlier between the, the sufferings of Christ and our rejection of him is, is brought back again in this text. Isaiah mentions us as sheep. He says that you and I, we have all wandered away. As many of you know, sheep are notoriously uh, single-minded. They are often unaware of their circumstances. And because of this, sheep are prone to get lost. And Isaiah says that we're just like them. We have this tendency to not be aware of the consequences of our choices, especially the eternal ones. And notice that this wandering is not an accident. It's this intentional turning away toward our own way. It's this act of self-dependence and self-sufficiency. It's a willful rebellion. It's us saying that we know better than God. We are the ones who are in control. The Apostle Paul picks up on this thread in Romans 3 and he says this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later he says that their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, this is us apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be in here and be the most generous person in the world. You may be the greatest parent, but I say this in, in love. This is all of us apart from Jesus. And it is in this context that God speaks a word of magnificent grace 
God has acted on our behalf instead of laying the iniquity that the sheep deserve, that we deserve for wandering off. He has laid it on Christ. He has laid on Christ the iniquity of all of us. See, Isaiah has Leviticus 16 in his mind. He has the, the day in this language of the day of atonement in the back of his head. On the day of atonement, in Leviticus 16, the high priest would take a, a, take a goat and he would place his hands on the head of that goat and he would confess the sins of Israel, the sins of God's people on that goat and he would send that goat out into the wilderness symbolizing and representing that God has carried our sins away. But there was also a second goat. This goat was brought into the temple and this, blood, this goat was was slaughtered and his, his blood was, was paid for the purpose of atoning for the sins of the people. Beloved, on the cross of Christ, Jesus fulfills both of these realities. He fulfills this, the reality that, that he is the, the one who, who takes the sins of the people upon himself and carries them away, but he is also the one whose blood atones for that sin. Beloved, Jesus is our substitute who bears our penalty and atones for our sin. But this brings us to an important question. What should these truths do in us? What should they produce in us? A number of things come to mind, but let me brief, briefly mention two of them. First, this text teaches us how deep the Father's love is for us. One of the things that I think many of us myself included, can get confused about in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of texts like this one is that we believe that God has done these things so that he is able to love us. In other words, Jesus does all of this on the cross to make us lovable. It's this view that suggests that Jesus dies so that the Father could love us. And hear me, that's not the message of the gospel at all. The gospel is that the Father loves us and demonstrates that love by sending his own son into the world to save us. Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans chapter 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the cross of Christ means that you and I no longer have to play this game of does he love me or does he love me not? This means that if you wonder if the Father loves you, you need not to look at your own progress in the Christian faith. If you are wondering if God loves you, you do not need to, to look and see if you are repenting enough for past sins. If you are wondering if the Father loves you, you do not need to be killing it right now in this moment. If you wonder if the Father loves you, you need to look nowhere else but the reality that he has given his very son for you. This text teaches us how deep the Father's love is for us. But secondly, this text should also cause us to sing. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 53 is a song. If you scroll your eyes down or maybe even over, the first command in Isaiah chapter 54 is sing. This is a doctrinally robust section of scripture, but at the end of the day, it is not merely content to be learned, but rather it is a song that is meant to be sung. J.I. Packer has said it well. 
Any theology that does not lead to song is at a fundamental level a flawed theology. So beloved, let this message of Isaiah 53, let this message, this good news that Christ has come into the world as our substitute, has paid for our sins, has atoned for them, cause us to break forth into rejoicing and singing about the love of the Father that has been demonstrated in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help to believe these truths. They are simply unbelievable at times. They are too marvelous and too wonderful for us to wrap our minds around them, but we know that they are true because they have come from your word. So Lord, we ask that you would help our unbelief, that you would take our eyes off of us, off of our righteousness, off of our progress in the Christian faith, and would you fix them on Jesus Christ, who has been crucified and raised on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.